they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. And he became hungry and wanted something to eat. But while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance and saw the heavens opened and something like a great sheet being let down by its four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him, rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, by no means, Lord. For I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him again a second time. What God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times, and the thing was taken at once to heaven. Now, while Peter was inwardly perplexed as to what the vision that he had seen might mean, behold, the men who were sent by Cornelius, having made inquiry for Simon's house, stood at the gate. And called out to ask whether Simon, who was called Peter, was lodging there. And while Peter was pondering the vision, the spirit said to him, Behold, three men are looking for you. Rise and go down and accompany them without hesitation, for I have sent them. And Peter went down to the men and said, I'm the one you're looking for. What is the reason for your coming? And they said, Cornelius, a centurion, an upright and God-fearing man who is well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation, was directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to his house and to hear what you have to say. So he invited the men to be his guests. The next day he rose and went away with them, and some of the brothers from Joppa accompanied him. And on the following day they entered Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and close friends. When Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. But Peter lifted him up, saying, Stand up, I too am a man. And as he talked with him, he went in and found many persons gathered. And he said to them, You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. May he add his blessing to the reading and the hearing and the preaching of his word. Amen. Uh, we were uh, watching TV yesterday morning. Of course, usually by this point uh, in the fall, we would already be watching football games. Uh, instead, now we just get to talk about what might be uh, football season, uh, but it was a, there was a fascinating special on ESPN. Uh, it was a 150-year special. You guys probably like saw it last year, but we're a little bit behind the curve. So, uh, but it was it was this fascinating uh, short history of uh, the 150 years of uh, of American college football, and it talked about the pageantry and the the bands, and, which is I love that. Uh, and like the colors and the mascots and all of these different things. But one of, the, one of the themes of that special that kept coming up again and again was how much, uh, in fact, one lady even said, she said, before I knew I was white and before I knew I was a woman, I knew that I was a Florida State fan. Right? So, so our identity, right, like that, that just shows the strong pull towards a tribe, right, towards the, the, the need to belong to a, 
a group, right? And how much, how much a part of our, our identities that becomes. In fact, if you're familiar with college football or really any kind of tribalism, that very much becomes a part of our, um, our, our, our desire to dominate other people, does it not? Um, so I, I think it's very uh, interesting, I, I think it's very fitting uh, that we are going through the book of Acts at this point uh, in, our, in our cultural history. Um, you know, back, in the, back at the end of last year as we were beginning to finish up the Gospel of Luke, or I guess maybe in the spring, because um, that seems like last year, um, I thought, well, it would just be a very natural thing to move into Acts because that's Luke part two. That's the continuing story of Jesus. And so let's just move into that. But what I've realized as we've gone through it, through it that, that God is speaking uh, at a very specific moment. Uh, and I think it's interesting that in the, the past two chapters that we've looked at, the issue of ethnicity and race have come up three times. The first is the gospel went to the Samaritans and that boundary was broken. Uh, then as uh, Philip took the gospel uh, presented the gospel to an Ethiopian eunuch, so a Jewish man and an Ethiopian man sitting in a chariot together. Uh, and then today, we have one of the most important moments again in the book of Acts, as the gospel now breaks down the barrier between Jew and Gentile, as Peter takes the gospel into a home full of Gentile people, to Cornelius's home. And uh, now, here's why, that, that may, that, if you've heard the story before, that may not seem like all that big of a deal. So let's just do a quick kind of overview of race, ethnicity in the Bible. We talked some about this uh, a few months back, but right, I, I prefer the, the word that's kind of bubbling around right now, of course, is racism. Uh, I prefer the term ethnocentrism, which is a little bit more cumbersome, but here's why. Because I believe the Bible teaches that all humans are one race. There are not several races. There is one race. We have a common ancestry in Adam and Eve. And out of that unity, God has created a beautiful diversity. But what we see happen after the fall is that that diversity becomes a seedbed for hostility and aggression and anger. Where again, we have this kind of tribalism where what's good for me and my tribe uh, is more important than what's good for you and your tribe. Uh, and so what's happening in, on our streets in America right now is actually a, something that has plagued humanity since almost the beginning, right? Um, while, while what's rearing its ugly head right now on our streets uh, is very present to us at the moment, this is nothing new. Ethnocentrism, tribalism, racism has been with us for a very, very long time. Uh, that, that, has been the, that has been part of the history of humanity. But the Bible also shows us a different picture. At the very end, we see what we read in Revelation chapter 5, that there is a new humanity, and that this humanity is not separated by language or culture or ethnicity or nation. Rather, all of that diversity is brought back together around God's throne. Right, So we read in, in Revelation 5 that this new humanity was made up of people from every tribe and language and nation and people. So all of the, the markers that we usually use to separate ourselves, all of the things we usually cling to, these identity markers, and say, oh, 
that kind of separate us from them, right? They speak that way. They're from there. They look like that. They behave like that. Right? All of those markers that we use to draw lines between us and them are all brought together in the new humanity to bring praise to Jesus. Right? You'll notice that it, the, the crowd around the throne in Revelation is not uniform. It is united, but it is not uniform. It is, it is diversified. So all those markers are not markers of division, uh, but of God-glorifying diversity. So we have hostility and strife at the beginning, and we have a new reconciled humanity of peace at the end. How in the world do we get from here to there? His name is Jesus. Uh, Revelation 5 tells us that this new humanity is created by Jesus' blood, that he has bought these people. He has ransomed them, drawn them out, made them his own. So he takes people from all these tribes and he makes his own tribe, right? He creates his own kingdom out of those other tribes. Now, why do I say all of that? What's, what's the point of all that? It starts right here. It starts with Peter and Cornelius. This is, this is really where it begins, where the good news of Jesus becomes a, goes from being a primarily Jewish thing to an everybody thing. And so the, the main point this morning, and it sounds so simple to say it, the gospel is good news for everyone. Now, that sounds very simple to say. And I... And I don't want to say, say that to smooth over any, uh, any difficult historical moments, right? We don't say the gospel is good news for everyone to try to smooth over racism, try to smooth over a history of slavery or anything like that, right? It's very simple to say the gospel is good news for everyone, but it's very difficult to live out in practice. So this morning, hopefully, we can draw out some of the, the difficult but necessary implications of that message that the gospel is good news for everyone. Um, First, uh, the first point we're going to make is that religion will not get you in. The second is that ethnicity will not keep you out. So religion doesn't get you into the kingdom and ethnicity doesn't keep you out of the kingdom because God is the one who makes people clean. God is the one who makes people clean. All right, so what do I mean by saying that religion won't get you in? Well, let's take a look at Cornelius. Uh, Look back at chapter 10, verses 1 and 2. He is a centurion. So he is a a Roman officer. He is in charge of 100 men. He lives in Caesarea, which was about 30 miles north of Joppa. Uh, It was an administrative center. There was a Roman garrison there. Uh, So Cornelius is not a Jewish man. He is a Gentile. Um, But Cornelius is said to be a devout man who feared God. A devout man who feared God. So, So there's a lot of things that, there's a number of things that could mean... Uh, but there's a, there's a category in the first century world called God-fearer, all right? There's, there's a, that's a label. And, and a God-fearer is a Gentile, so a non-Jew, 
who chose to worship the God of Israel, right? To, to adopt some of the religious practices of Israel, just not all of them, right? He wouldn't become a full convert, but he rejected the, the, the worship of many gods, which would have been common for his people, and chose to worship the one God of Israel. Now, that doesn't sound like a big deal to you and me, but you need to remember that in the first century, monotheism, the worship of one God, was, uh, that was a unicorn, okay? That was, that was not normal. What was normal was the worship of many gods, all right? That's how Cornelius would have grown up, but Cornelius rejects that uh, to, uh, to adopt some of the practices of Judaism. So we're told that he's a devout man, a man who fears God. He leads his household in that. Uh, so he doesn't just keep it to himself, but rather he, he leads all of his household. That would, inc- that would include uh, wife, children, servants. He says, this is, this is what we're going to do. This will be our religious practice. It says that he gave alms. That means he gave to the poor. Uh, so he was a generous man. And it says he prayed continually to God. So uh, his, his religion wasn't simply an outward show, uh, but it was something that he held to personally. And so we can say that Cornelius was a good man. He was a, he was a religious man. Right? He wasn't, he wasn't a fraud. He wasn't a fake. He was a... He was a good religious man. In fact, when he gets a vision of an angel, how would you like that to happen during your prayer time? Right? Uh, he gets his vision of an angel, and the angel even commends his prayers and his gifts. Right? He says that those have come before God as a memorial offering. So what we can say is that Cornelius would fit very well in southern society. He was a good religious man. He was well known for his generosity and devotion. He was well thought of by the Jewish community. In other words, he did everything that he was supposed to do. But it wasn't enough. Cornelius' religion, as devoted as he was, was not enough. Now, why do I say that? I say that because an angel appears to Cornelius and tells him to go get Peter. Right? If, if Cornelius' religion were enough to satisfy God, to make him right before God... Then, then no angel would have ever come to Cornelius, right? Peter wouldn't have to be sent to Cornelius. But Cornelius doesn't have the gospel. He doesn't have the good news. And so if being religious or being a good person were enough, uh, then this scene really wouldn't have happened. But what we realize as we move through the rest of chapter 10 and Luke retells the story, Peter retells the story rather in chapter 11, uh, is that Religion won't forgive you of your sins. Religion won't, uh, won't lead you to repentance that leads to life. And so this morning, you may be in the category of Cornelius. You may be a good person. You may be a religious person. Right? You, you, you go, you've been to church regularly. You've, uh, you've signed, you know, you've donated to all the right causes. You vote, right? But, friend, that's not enough. I remember uh, when, I, when I was in college, um, 
I had, uh, I had, I was kind of beginning to move towards Christianity. I'd grown up in the church and rejected it. I was kind of moving back in that direction. But the message in my head was, okay, I pray a prayer and Jesus breaks me even. And then it's up to me to, you know, keep my nose clean from there. And I remember a man asking me, uh, the, the campus pastor asking me, what is it that makes you a Christian? And I said, well, you know, I try to read the Bible. And he said, no. And I said, well, I, I uh, you know, I'm trying to learn how to pray. And he said, no. And I don't remember like the five other answers I gave, but he said no to every one of them. It was a very frustrating conversation, right? I couldn't seem to get the right answer. And finally, he just said, he said, Christ, Christ alone is what makes you a Christian. Friend, you may be a good person, you may be a religious person, but you may be like Cornelius without the good news that Jesus is the one who saves sinners. And so, uh, so religion won't get you in, um, but neither will ethnicity keep you out. So Cornelius has to go, has to get Peter. He has something to hear from Peter, but it's interesting that Peter has something he needs to learn from Cornelius. Uh, so we pick up Peter's story uh, as Cornelius' servants are on their way to the house where Peter is staying. Peter is praying, uh, and it's encouraging to me that uh, even the great Peter uh, gets hungry and falls asleep while he prays. Um, makes me feel good. His prayers are probably a little bit longer than mine. Um, you might even say, that's why you don't pray at noon. Um, but Peter is praying. And he receives a very strange vision, something like a sheet. Let's, let's say it's a big picnic blanket, okay? Uh, and on that blanket, it comes down out of heaven, and it has every kind of animal you can think, on, uh, uh, think of on it. And Peter is told by God to kill and to eat. Now, let's do a little bit of, a little bit of background, because Peter says... Uh, May it never be. No, no way, Lord. I've never eaten anything common. What does Peter mean when he says that? Well, behind Peter's comment are the food laws of the Old Testament. Uh, you can find them in uh, Leviticus. You can find them again in Deuteronomy. Um, but there were these laws that, that separated the Jewish people from the nations around them, Right? That they were, they were told not to eat certain things. So certain creatures were considered clean, and certain creatures were considered unclean. Uh, and, and their identity was separated from the nations around them by those clean laws. Um, now, I want, you, I want to read for you a, a passage from John Stott, just to maybe help you get some, some of the idea. Stott was a, a pastor in Great Britain. He says this, it is difficult for us to grasp the impassable gulf which yawned in those days between the Jews on the one hand and the Gentiles on the other. Now, that, that wasn't commanded by the Old Testament. In fact, on the contrary, the Old Testament affirmed that God had a purpose for Gentiles. By choosing and blessing Abraham's family, he intended to bless all the families of the earth. And you can read about that in Genesis 12, 1 through 4. Stott says, The tragedy was that Israel twisted the doctrine of election 
into one of favoritism, became filled with racial pride and hatred, despised Gentiles as dogs, and developed traditions which kept them apart. So that's, that's the Jew-Gentile reality that's happening in this, in, kind of in the background of this passage. And so Peter gets this strange vision where he's told to kill and eat these animals that are unclean, that are out of bounds. And so Peter, like a good Jewish man, says, no way. Not gonna, I haven't done it my entire life. I'm not going to start now. And then the Lord says something interesting. He says, do not call common what God has made clean. And that happens three times. And then the the picnic blanket goes back up. And and Peter is just kind of left there on the roof, bum-fuzzled by what in the world this means. And as he's pondering this, uh, this... Uh, these servants from Cornelius come and they knock on the door and they ask for Peter. Uh, and while they're asking for Peter, the Holy Spirit says to him, uh, look, at, look at verse 19. While Peter was pondering the vision, the Spirit said to him, Behold, three men are looking for you. Rise and go down and accompany them without hesitation, for I have sent them. Another way to translate that part where it says without hesitation is uh, without making a distinction. Peter is told to go with these Gentiles without making any distinction. All right, so bear that in mind. He's also just been told that the whole clean, unclean distinction, God's doing away with that. All right? So all of these things are rolling around in Peter's head uh, as he approaches Caesarea and he comes to Cornelius' house uh, and Cornelius greets him, uh, and Cornelius has been so excited to, to have Peter come to his house. He considers him a messenger from God, and therefore, like a good Roman, he bows down to worship Peter. Uh, and Peter says, no, 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 right? I'm, I'm just a man, right? I'm not, I'm not godlike. I'm not deity, anything like that. Um, but it's, it's when Peter walks into Cornelius' living room, and he sees all of these Gentiles gathered around to hear from him, that it finally clicks. And Peter, in verse 28, says, You yourselves know how unlawful it is. Now, that unlawful, that word unlawful, we would, we would say taboo, right? So it wasn't against Jewish law for Peter to go into this home. But Jewish tradition had made it unlawful, right? It was, it was out of bounds. It was not done, Okay. So, Peter said, you yourselves know how taboo it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. What's happening? Peter realizes that the barrier between Jew and Gentile has come down. That the gospel now breaks this final ethnic barrier. Uh, as, as Paul will say in Ephesians chapter 2, that the dividing wall of hostility between Jew and Gentile has been broken down in Jesus. Now, um, how has that happened? And that's really the, the third point. Notice, going back to Peter's vision, that God says, Do not call common what God has made 
clean. You see, the, the similarity between religion and ethnicity is, is they, they're both ways for us to raise our stock. Right? Uh, Paul Miller uh, talks about the failure boasting chart, right? That all, of us, that all of us try to plot ourselves somewhere along this imaginary line. Uh, we're always looking to kind of one-up each other, right? I'm, I mean, I'm always looking to get higher up the boasting chart and avoid the failure side, right? And some of us do that through religion, right? If I, if I can be good enough, if I can check the right boxes, right, that moves me up the chart. Uh, and for some of us, that's ethnicity, right? Ethnicity is the same way. And this is why uh, critical race theory, which if you've never heard that word before, that's kind of the political theory that is driving riots on the streets right now. It's what drives cancel culture, okay? It's a, it's, it's a child or a grandchild of Marxism. And here's basically the idea. This group is in power, uh, and therefore they are guilty. And their power needs to be removed and given to those who are powerless, right? Um, but... I'm, I'm simplifying it, but you can see kind of how incoherent that system is. Because what happens when you give this group power? Well, now they're the guilty ones, and they need to be removed from power. Right? So you can see that this system, clamoring for justice, actually provides no justice at all, because it's not biblical justice, right? It's a shell game. We're just kind of moving things around. It doesn't actually liberate anybody. It's just another way of playing on the failure boasting chart. Right. I need to get up there. Right. I need to have all of the right identity markers that move me up the chart so that I can boast. But what but what this passage shows us is that the gospel breaks both of those down. That because because in the gospel, we don't come like what I what I do is not my identity and my culture is not my identity. Right. Instead, I come into God's kingdom on the back of another, on the back of Jesus. And so grace humbles the proud, right? It brings the proud low because there's nothing you contribute to your salvation. And it raises up the lowly, again, because there's nothing you could pay for it anyway. The gospel is the great equalizer. And that's what we're seeing as Peter walks into Cornelius' living room to tell him about Jesus. That grace is available for everyone. That the gospel is good news for everyone. So I don't know where you find yourself this morning. But I want to remind you, or maybe even tell you for the first time, you cannot make yourself clean. No amount of good doing will clean you. Nor are you automatically clean or unclean because of your ethnicity. No, God is the one who makes us clean through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, our Lord. That is our only hope. Let's pray. Our gracious God, as we hear this word and then as we come to your table, would you remind us again of your grace, uh, that we are a people who are made new We don't make ourselves new. We are not born new. We must be made new by your saving grace. Whether we're like Cornelius and doing lots of good things, we need a new heart. 
or whether we're like Peter and we're born into the right group, we see that you show no favorites. There is no favoritism with you that all must come in through the narrow gate, all must come in through Jesus. Would you work that reality, massage that reality, that truth into our hearts? We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.